Good morning, people of God. It's a joy to be with you. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And today we will be in verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. I hope that your heart is full uh, with praise to God for His grace and bringing us all here this morning. It's, it's always a joy to gather as God's people, to be together uh, before His face to be vertically oriented toward the Lord collectively as God's people. To be able to look to the left and to the right and see brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are also bought, purchased by Christ's blood, those who will be with us forever in glory, those who love the same God whom we love. I was reading this week in John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's a one of the great works of, of theology. And Calvin is discussing uh, how we know the scriptures are true. And he, he goes into some reasons, but uh, he's very quick to say, look, at the end of the day, it, it's not really about rational demonstration. Uh, it's about the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. And he goes explaining how when a person becomes a Christian, the, the Spirit testifies in their hearts that the Word of God is true and they just know it beyond doubt. It's certain It's not to say Satan doesn't tempt us uh, to doubt and other sorts of things, but there is this internal deep trust in the uh, truth of God's word. And he's trying to explain it and explain it. And at the end of the day, he he says, uh, every Christian uh, basically knows what I'm talking about. And so uh, that is is the truth. We know uh, that God has uh, given us this this confidence, this rock-solid confidence in him, in his Word. And so as we look to the left and the right this morning, we're, we're looking at other people who have been graced in this way, who by God's power, working in the heart, has given faith. He's given this trust in his word. So what a joy to gather with people like that to worship a God like this. As most of you know, we have been working our way through Exodus. So if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, that's why we have these posters up on the side here. We are going through Exodus as a church. And over the last few months, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. So not isolated from the book of Exodus, but uh, as we've been going through Exodus, this is where we are in chapter 20. Uh, these first 17 verses looking at the Ten Commandments. So, uh, as I've said before, this has been a series within a series. Uh, the Ten Commandments in its own right could be a series. And uh, you may have gone through this as a church in, in your past experiences with churches uh, where the church did a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, so it functions as a series in its own right, but it is a series within a series as we're going through Exodus. And today, we come to the end of this mini-series with the Tenth Commandment. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Tenth Commandment, No Coveting. So far, we've looked at, and I'll I'll list here uh, by the sermon titles, the commandments we've looked at. So we've looked at Yahweh alone, no idols, honoring God's name, and the Sabbath day. Those were the first four commandments, and um, as has historically been understood, the commandments can be divided into two tables, not an even five and five, uh, as we might would like to do it, uh, but a four and six. So the first four commandments deal directly with love of God. They're very vertical uh, in their orientation. Uh, And the latter six deal with love of neighbor. Of course, understanding that all ten of these have to do with love of God, ultimately. And out of that, truly, love of neighbor As well. So Yahweh alone, no idols, honoring God's name, the Sabbath day, and then the latter six, honoring parents, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no false testimony. We talked about that last week, and uh, as part of that commandment, the ninth commandment, no false testimony, we talked about lying. Uh, And I I mentioned this last week, there's a moral complexity embedded in the command, in the ninth command, as we think about not lying. And and to understand the moral complexity there, we just have to think about something like warfare. 
Uh, We find deception in warfare. We find the Lord even directing his people uh, in deception in warfare, which which gives us an example of the moral complexity involved. We talked about very briefly last week, I mentioned how... um, Uh, Certain fields, certain uh, vocations, like being an undercover cop or uh, being um, an intelligence officer, or or even for that matter, as I said before, being uh, a military commander, involves by necessity certain acts of deception. And so we understand that moral complexity, but as I said at the end of the, or, or during the sermon last week, I do believe that the ninth commandment does forbid lying. And we are meant to understand that God is providential in any situation we would find ourselves in. And as I said last week, I agree with Augustine's point that in any situation we would not uh, murder in order to address that situation or we would not commit adultery in order to address that situation. Uh, So likewise we would not lie. And I just want to put that back before you again, if that's something that you've wrestled with. And I know as, as gospel community groups this week, we've discussed that, uh, some of the moral complexity involved in lying and lying versus deception and evasion and all of this. Uh, so there are two uh, works on ethics that I think would be helpful in tying together, and they offer two different perspectives. I mentioned them last week. I'll mention them again. So John Frame's book uh, on uh, the Christian life, on ethics, and also Wayne Grudem's book, and they disagree. Wayne Grudem was John Frame's student, but they disagree on this question. And the, uh, the approach that I took last week was the approach also taken by Wayne Grudem. So if you'd like to look more into this and explore this further and the ethical questions involved, please do go and read those. Unfortunately, those are quite expensive and very huge. Uh, so if you're running out of book Uh, shelf space, you may want to consider maybe a Kindle version or something like that, Uh, but there you go if you're interested. Today, we come to the final commandment, the 10th commandment, no covening. And I pray that the Lord has used this time greatly in our church, this time in the 10 commandments, to deepen your knowledge of him as we recognize that the Ten Commandments show us the character of God. They show us who God is. To grow your love for God as you consider the beauty and the glory and the majesty of his law as a reflection of his character. And to motivate your service to him. That this time in the Ten Commandments has done all of those things in all of our hearts And so I pray that you will take time before the Lord as we come to the end of this to consider how God has spoken to you over the last few months. How, where, where God, what are, what have been the inflection points in your own life as the Lord has applied his word to your heart. As we talked about last week, as we come to the Ten Commandments, we are getting a portrait of Christ As we study them, this is a picture of Jesus' righteousness. So we talk about how Jesus was perfect. We talk about how Jesus was righteous. What the Ten Commandments do for us is they, they give the contours of that. They show us how is it that Jesus was righteous. What does it mean that Jesus was morally perfect? And we see in the Ten Commandments what Jesus' character was and is like he never disobeyed these commands never even more he kept them completely both in their narrow sense and in their broad sense and we've talked a lot about this as we've gone through the 10 commandments how they can be applied very narrowly for example the ninth commandment to a law court situation in which you have witnesses brought forward who must be truthful Uh, they can be applied that way but also quite broadly as we just consider truthfulness in general and what we're meant to understand is that the 10 commandments help to encapsulate all of Christian ethics, all of God's will understood for us rightly. And so, what we understand is that Jesus did not just keep the narrow understanding of the commandment, he kept it all. All the implications, all of the spin offs from these commandments, all that falls under each commandment was kept perfectly by Christ. That, for us, is inconceivable. 
inconceivable to understand what it would have been like for Jesus while on earth to perfectly, in every way, both negatively and positively, obey God's commands. Jesus Christ is our perfect Redeemer. He is our perfect Savior. He's the one whom God promised from the very beginning who would crush the head of the serpent. He's the one whom God promised to Abraham would come through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who would reign supreme forever. He's the son of David who will reign forever on David's throne. He is the perfect redeeming Savior. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and here it is, yet without sin. So tempted as we are and therefore can, can, empathize, can sympathize with our weaknesses and what it is like to be under temptation and yet Jesus perfectly without sin. 1 John chapter 3 verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. That's why Jesus came. And in him there is no sin. Perfect sinlessness. So the Ten Commandments remind us of Jesus' perfection. They point to him. They put him on display. The Ten Commandments also remind us how much we need this Savior. Because as the Ten Commandments put, you, you can imagine in the old days of a projector, you can imagine the Ten Commandments projecting the perfection of Jesus up on the wall, while next to Jesus, they perfect all the nastiness that is in us. All the sin that flows out of our corrupted, rebellious, God-hating, self-worshipping, neighbor-trampling hearts. They show us how much we need this Jesus. How much we need this perfect Savior. We need to be saved from our law-breaking by the one who never broke the law. We need to be forgiven. And we need new hearts that love and obey God's law. So these commandments, more than anything, drive us to the salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. They should cause us to rejoice in Christ, to delight in Christ, to treasure Christ, to love Christ. As Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me, Peter? Jesus calls all of us the, the same way. Do you love me? These commandments grow our affection for our Redeemer. He is the only way to be saved. He is the, our only hope in life and death. As Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Either be saved through Christ or be condemned. It's black and white. There's no gray with regard to salvation. There's no middle way. There's no alternative path. There's one perfect law-keeping redeemer and there's a mass of law-breaking humanity and the only door through which one can pass to be saved, the only ark upon which one can rest from the storm is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll talk about this morning, there is no commandment that makes clearer our need for a Savior than the Tenth Commandment. No commandment that puts before us more our great lostness apart from Christ than the Tenth Commandment. So if you would please stand as we read God's Word together. We're going to read, as we've been doing, going through the Ten Commandments, we're going to read um, all of verses 1 to 17. That's our last time doing it, so plug in, take it in. Hopefully it's not your last time 
uh, reading the Ten Commandments, uh, but is our last time doing it here in this mini-series. So we're going to read verses 1 to 17, and we will be focusing today on the last verse, verse 17. This is the Word of God. (coughs) And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. Praise God that he is a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then our verse for today, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You can go to be seated. Let's pray and ask for God to illuminate his word by his spirit. And let's ask that God would convict us of our sin, that he would uh, draw us more and more to Christ's likeness, and that he would give us joy in Christ. That as we see our sin reflected in these commandments, that we would uh, hold Christ dear to us. That we would look to him and delight in his salvation, which he has given us as Christians. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Father in heaven. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you have taken our law breaking and you have transferred that to Christ at the cross and you have transferred his law keeping to us in your saving of us. God, we praise you that you chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We thank you that you drew us to him, just as Jesus says that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. And Lord, we we thank you that you drew us, those of us who are Christians, you drew us to the Savior. I pray for any among us this morning who's not a Christian, that you would draw them also to the Savior. For apart from your drawing grace, they have no hope. So, Lord, we pray that you would do as you promised, that you would, by means of your word, that you would bring new life. That as you speak, you would say in those hearts, let there be light. That you would bring the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to these souls. Lord, we pray that you would regenerate hearts and make new and convert sinners to yourself, that they would be your saints, your holy ones. God, we thank you that you've brought us here this morning to be sanctified by your word as Jesus prayed in John 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so God, we praise you that you have been merciful to us in your providence, that you got us out of bed this morning and you brought us here to be sanctified by your word. Would we be willing participants uh, as we listen As we think, 
as we apply, as we meditate, as we hear, that we would be like that soil that receives your word, that we would, like Paul says in Colossians 3, that we would have the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Father, we thank you that uh, you are with us today as we gather. We're thankful that you have given us brothers and sisters in Christ to hold us accountable, to spur us on in our faith, to remind us of your truth, to model for us when we are weak what it means to be faithful, what it means to be holy, what it means to trust in Christ. Lord, we thank you for this time and we ask that your spirit would guide it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to look at three things that the 10th commandment does. As we finish up, three things that the 10th commandment does. So you'll see them up here on the screen. It looks back, it goes deep, and it reaches out. It looks back, it goes deep, and it reaches out. So if you'd like to write those down, go ahead. So first, it looks back. Let's go back and read our verse, just verse 17, and put it in view as we go through this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The word here for covet in Hebrew is simply the word for desire. Uh, It it, uh, really just has that basic connotation to desire, to desire or to take pleasure in And this desire can be positive or negative. So the word itself, the Hebrew verb itself, is neutral in that respect. You can desire something and it be good and right and true and pleasing to God. And you can desire something and it not be good and right and true and pleasing to God. This desire can be positive or negative depending on the object, the motive, and the circumstances. So let me just give one obvious example, taking us back to the very beginning of the Bible. In the first three chapters, in Genesis 1 to 3, in those first three chapters, we get this verb being used both positively and negatively. So positively, we find it in chapter 2, verse 9. Where the Lord, where, where it says there, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree, and then you read these words in English in the ESV, every tree that is pleasant. And there's the Hebrew verb here. It, it means to be desired. Uh, that, that's the verb in view. So you can translate that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is to be desired, to the sight and good for food. So there we see that this is part of God's intention. God made human beings and he gave human beings a will and he gave human beings affections and he gave human beings the capacity to perceive things that are, in fact, desirable in and of themselves. And and he made within human beings the soul to be moved by the object as it is perceived and for the soul to feel and experience pleasure on account of that object in relation to the soul. Chapter 2, verse 9 of Genesis tells us that this is good. This is before the fall. But then we find a negative use in chapter 3, verse 6. As the fall is taking place, and you could say here, Eve's heart has already fallen at this point. Chapter 3, verse 6 says this. So when the woman, so Satan comes and tempts Eve, and it says, when the woman saw... That the tree was good for food. This is the tree that God had forbidden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one tree that God said no. All the other trees you can eat from, but this one, no. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired. Same verb as in chapter 2. To make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
So here we see that it's not in the verb itself, but it's in the the motive of the heart. It's in the circumstances. It is in the object. Wayne Grudem says that this desire is negative when it is an inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire that is contrary to God's will. And that's really the key. Contrary to God's will. God made all the trees in the garden for Adam and Eve to eat from. And that was, that was in line with God's will for them to go and take that beautiful, tasty, delicious fruit off of the tree and to eat it. Brought God much glory and brought Adam and Eve much pleasure. That was good. And the desire for that was good because it was in line with God's will. When we go to chapter 3, we see what is contrary to God's will. That which God had forbidden, Eve saw as desirable. And what was once prohibited became an object even of worship. And as we read here in Exodus... It is contrary to God's will to desire what belongs to another. Now, let me just make a little distinction here because I think it's important for us to understand this. This is not seeing something and thinking, hmm, I'd like to have one of those. Right? So you're out in your front yard, you're mowing your grass with uh, your little $100 mower uh, that you've had for, you know, seven, eight years. And it keeps shutting off and you keep cranking that thing and it's just, you know, Black smoke's coming out of it. You look back and there's patches of grass, so you got to go back over it again. You look across the street and your neighbor has this, you know, great mower and they don't have to stop or anything. It never shuts off. They just go back and forth, back and forth. They're sitting on the porch drinking sweet tea. They're done. And you're still going. Or maybe you look at something else that your neighbor has and you think in your mind, you know, i got to get me one of those. Maybe you're a, a lady and you go over to, to someone's house and you see something in the kitchen that, they, that you have thought about. That would be really helpful. You see that and you think, man, I, I think I'd like to have one of those. That, that would be very helpful. There's nothing wrong with that, rightly understood. It is not seeing something that someone else has and thinking to yourself, uh, that would be something worthwhile having. Rather, it is setting the hands of your heart on what belongs to another. I think we're meant to see coveting very much like we're meant to see stealing. Uh, But when we see stealing, we we see hands moving. We see fingers moving. The hands move. Now, of course, today in a digital age, it doesn't always involve it in this way, but we see hands moving, we see arms moving, fingers moving, and the physical taking of something that belongs to another. Well, coveting happens on the inside, and it is where the heart, as it were, reaches out with the hands of the heart and takes hold of what someone else has. Very different from appreciating the belonging of another and thinking that would be worth having myself. Rather, this in the heart reaches out for another person's possession. And here, in the context of the ancient Israelites, one's wife and valuables are mentioned, but these are really just examples. So we read through this and we think, well, I've never coveted my neighbor's ox. It's never happened in my life. I've never coveted someone else's donkey. Well, we recognize that these things are, are meaningful, they're relevant, they're applicable very much in that society. That's what they had. Those are the things that you would be tempted to covet as you look across to your neighbor's tent and you see the things that they have. But these are just examples. We're not meant to get hung up on the examples because the last phrase makes clear that this is all-encompassing. So it ends in this way. Anything that is your neighbor's. So in case you were going through the list and checking boxes and deciding, well, okay, so an ox is probably like, you know, a a lawnmower or a bobcat or whatever, and a donkey would be maybe like a car. And so so you you, kind of go through and you one-to-one correspondence. You can't do that 
Because it comes to the end, anything that is your neighbor's. It's all-encompassing. And as you see from the sermon point, the first thing we need to recognize as we think about this first point, it looks back. The first thing we need to recognize about this commandment is that it does, in fact, look backwards. It looks back to the first commandment. When we come to the 10th commandment, it runs us back to the first commandment. It's really interesting. It's the first thing it does. We come to the 10th, and we're meant immediately to beeline back to the first commandment, or you could say to the first two. It serves as a bracket. Where we were in our hearts, where we were in our lives at the first commandment is precisely the place we are in the 10th. It brings us back, that is to say, to idolatry. To idolatry, to worshiping something other than God, to set your heart's desire on what belongs to another is to replace God with that object. It is to move your worshiping gaze from Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I Am, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is to move your worshiping gaze. From him to the object of another. It is to commit idolatry. Now, we know this because it is explicitly said that way in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, as we think about this idea of coveting. There are different words involved here, but it's coveting nonetheless. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, <coughs> sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, and there's not a period there. There's a little explanation given right after covetousness, a little descriptor, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So to break the 10th commandment is to break the first and the second commandment. Well, Paul doesn't just say it once, he says it twice. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then he puts it in parentheses, well, the parentheses are later, but he says this, that is an idolater. A person who is covetous is an idolater, and then he goes on to say, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So there we see very clearly, we don't have to sort of leaps and bounds, we don't have to get out there, we don't have to infer that, it's not implication, it's just so explicit, it's right here, coveting is idolatry. And let me say this to us, coveting acts as a thermometer of all the ways that we are dissatisfied with God. You know, if God, to use John Piper's phrase, if God is most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in him. God is the most unglorified in us when we are the most dissatisfied in him. Well, coveting lets you know how dissatisfied you are in your God. How unhappy you are with his conduct, with his being God. It tells us we have failed to be satisfied in him, that God is really just not cutting it. He's just not cutting it in our hearts. We need something more. We need something better. So we covet. That's how it works. We've already talked about the idea of contentment when we looked at the eighth commandment against stealing. Coveting comes from a heart that lacks contentment in the Lord. Ultimately, if you're coveting, then you're not content in the Lord. That's another way of saying you're not satisfied in the Lord. You're not drawing your happiness and joy from God, your relationship with God. A lack of contentment. Contentment is filled with trust and thankfulness towards God. When we are content in God, we're just bubbling up with trust in Him. God, you, you're taking care of me. You've always taken care of me. You've got my life in your hands. I love you, Father. No matter what, I know I can trust you. That's a content heart. Trust and thankfulness. 
God, look at all the ways you're taking care of my family. God, look at all the ways that you have provided for me in my life. Well, thank you for this, Lord. This, this thing that others might look at and say is so small, but, but you take time to give God praise and thanks for the smallest of things. The gaze is not on all the things that we lack. Oh, man, look at what they have and what they have and I don't have, but it's on what God has given us. And there's just so much thankfulness over what God has given us. We're overwhelmed with what he has given us. That we're sitting here this morning breathing. For those of us who have children, that we have our children here this morning with us. Praise God. So many things we just take for granted. Until they are gone. Until they are Gone. Contentment is filled with trust and thankfulness towards God. It looks to him for what is needed and gives him thanks for everything that we have. Discontent is the opposite. It demonstrates a lack of trust and gratitude. And discontent is the fuel for the fire of coveting. There's discontent in the heart and that spills over into coveting into envying. So, as Walt said earlier, we need to examine our hearts more so than any other time as we think about this commandment to really dig deep and examine our hearts. Are you looking around, longing for, craving after what others have, Turn back to God this morning. Turn back to the Lord. Turn away from that. Find your joy and satisfaction in the Lord and trust in his providence and care for you and your family. He will provide, he will take care of you and he will do it in the way that he thinks best. In the way that he has designed you for and prepared you for. And in the way that you will for eternity praise him for. His way is perfect. His thoughts and intentions are flawless. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't need a co-pilot. He doesn't need an accountability board. He needs nothing. He's perfect. And God takes care of us according to his will. Philippians chapter 4 verses 11 to 13 tells us or gives us a picture of what this content heart looks like as we see the apostle Paul. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says this. Now, we put this thing on a coffee cup. We put this thing on a t-shirt. We put this thing on our, you know, uh, email or whatever. Uh, th- this, is, this is a verse that we pluck right out of context, but we need to remember the context. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, what's he talking about there? He's not talking about charging into a football game. He's not talking about anything of that sort, right? He's talking about, I can do all of this contentment thing. I can do all of this being in a state of need thing with joy in my heart through Christ who strengthens me. He's the one who gives me the contentment. He's the one who gives me the ability to overcome discontent and covetousness and ingratitude and distrust. He's the one who strengthens me for this great battle daily for contentment. As we think about this this week, pray that God would give you this heart that we read in Psalm 42, verses 1 to 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? When that that sort of attitude crowds your heart, when that sort of attitude fills your heart, it just pushes everything else away because it fills us 
with joy in God. And that is the way that we can face trials of every kind and rejoice because we're like, this trial is amazing because I'm experiencing God's special grace. I am experiencing a relationship with him that that I have not experienced up to this point. God, praise you for this trial because you are near to me and I am near to you. That's the sort of attitude that James has in view. But of course, that attitude makes no sense in a pagan culture. It makes no sense in a materialistic country. It makes no sense in a a worship of self kind of atmosphere. The course of this world is entirely opposed to contentment in God and rejoicing in God. Instead, we will only be content. We will only rejoice if we're comfortable We have a bright future ahead of us, and everything is well. So first, this commandment looks back. It looks back to idolatry. It looks back to the first commandment. Secondly, it goes deep. As we've been going through the Ten Commandments, we have talked about how all of them ultimately have to do with the heart. Yes, God cares about the act itself. If you are angry... With your brother, Uh, it is better for you not to go and kill your brother or your neighbor than for, it is better for you not to do that than to do that. God cares about the act. It's not as, well, you've already murdered them in, in your heart, so it's done. No. Don't murder them with your hand because you've murdered them in your heart. We've talked about how God cares about the act itself, but the act we recognize begins in the heart. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So every evil deed begins in the heart. Not just something that we happen to do like robots on the outside. Just My arm just moved. No, it began in the heart, began in the desires, in the pleasures. And as Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount, even if the act never takes place on the outside, God sees the evil on the inside. So quite apart from the fact that that the heart leads to external acts, God sees what goes on in the heart even if it does not lead to an external act. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, he has a perfect view of each of our hearts this morning. He sees all the things going on in there. He sees all the desires, all the hopes, aspirations. He sees all the things we're thinking about right now. And he sees that for every person, every moment. That should just cause us to glorify God. I mean, he's he's incredible. He's, He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He can do that. His eyes penetrate to the deepest recesses of our hearts. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, shows us that it matters what happens in the heart, even if it doesn't happen on the outside. Jesus says regarding murder, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then in Matthew 5, verse 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You don't even have to touch her. Just look and lust, and you have committed adultery in your heart. So we know that all of the commandments have to do with the heart. But here in the 10th commandment, that is made explicit and abundantly clear. All of the other commandments go there, but now we are told this explicitly. In other words, you could read the preceding commandments and think merely in external terms. And I'm sure many have done this. Coming to the Bible, reading the Ten Commandments, they go through and they say, murdering another person, haven't done that. Having an affair, haven't done that. Stealing their stuff, maybe when I was a kid. I don't think I've done that in a while. I don't, maybe I haven't done that ever, right? So murdering, having an affair, stealing their stuff. 
It would be easy for a person to come along and say that with regard to those commandments. But here in the 10th commandment, that reading is not even possible. The 10th commandment takes it straight to the heart. Even on the surface. You don't have to dig into the commandment. It's just on the surface at the heart level. It has to do with one's desires, one's longings, one's cravings, yearnings, and pleasures. And this one can go undetected, by the way, really easily. You could be coveting away in your heart, all sorts of coveting. And no one in your life even knows about it, right? No one. No one even knows that's going on inside of you. Although, let me say this, the attentive observer will see the evidence in your words and actions, right? So it it will bear fruit, bad fruit, not good fruit. It will bear fruit in what we say. It will bear fruit in how much attention we give to things in our minds. It will bear fruit in what we do or what we fail to do with regard to others. And so let me just say this. Your spouse probably knows a lot about your coveting. Have a conversation about this tonight as husband and wife. This week, dig into this as a couple. Be useful to each other, right? Be a help to each other. Husband and wife talking, pointing out in loving and gracious ways, ways in which you see coveting showing up in the life of the other. What are we there for? What are we there for? God has placed us in each other's life as a means of sanctification, as a grace to each other. No one knows us better than our spouse. And no one, short of God, will probably have a a view to your coveting more than your spouse. So what's my point as I've gone through this? The point is that this commandment, as the point says up here, the sermon point, it goes deep. It gets down into the places in our hearts that we don't like to talk about. These are places that we cover up with dirt. It is a searching, penetrating commandment. And catch this. It brings all of our breaking of the other commandments into view. This commandment is so penetrating and searching in its depth, but it also drags all the other commandments with it as it holds our heart captive. Our murderous trampling over people to get what we want. Our adulterous thoughts about another person's spouse. Thoughts that no one else knows about but the Lord. Our thieving ambition to have what belongs to another. And most of all, as we talked about earlier, our idolatrous replacement of the creator with the creature. Our substitution of the giver with with the gift. So let me just encourage you. This morning, let the Lord search your heart. Ask the Lord to search your heart. And don't do this, Lord, search my heart, right? There's a way that we can do that mentally. There's a way that we can do that in our hearts. We want him to search, but we've got like certain places he can't search. And we've got certain things that we're just not interested in him going there. Right? We do that sometimes subconsciously without even thinking about it explicitly. But but bear your heart to the Lord. Open your life, your thoughts, your desires, all the things you hold dear. Put them on a table before the Lord's eyes and ask God, ask him to search your heart. Read his word because his word searches our heart. It penetrates As Hebrews says, it penetrates to the deepest parts of who we are and it exposes sin. Get alone with God, read his word, ask him to search your heart. Pray this week, Lord, show me the desires of my heart. Show me how I have forsaken you for created things. Show me how envy, lust, and greed are twisting my mind and invading my life. Bring before my eyes what Satan has hidden from my view. The Lord is faithful. He is faithful. Before we go to our final point, I want to return to what was said in the introduction. Here, with the Ten Commandment, with the Ten Commandment, Tenth Commandment, we are brought to the Lord Jesus 
Christ. As I said before, more than any other commandment, this commandment shows us that there's simply no way that we can please God with our works. There's simply no way that we can clean ourselves up enough for God's penetrating view. What heart here has not been filled with coveting? What heart here is pure in all of its desires? None. Not a single one. This commandment, more than any other, shows us what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. And as Jared uh, mentioned Romans 7, er, Romans 7 earlier, it was uh, blinded. Paul's blinded to his own coveting until the law revealed it, made it known. None is righteous, no, not one. Because everyone covets. So, stop looking to yourself to please the Lord. We need the righteousness of another to be counted to us, to be put into our account, to be placed over our sin. We need to be justified, made right before God, declared right before God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be saved. Let me say this to you kids. If you're checked out, check in right now. Listen, you cannot get to heaven by checking boxes and keeping rules. Because God knows your heart. He sees the way that you love things more than him. He sees the way that you want what your friend has and you covet that. And if you had the right opportunity, you'd take it. He sees your heart. There's no way you can clean yourself up. You need Jesus to forgive you. You need Jesus to cover you and to fill you with his spirit. You need Christ's righteousness over you before God's face and you need a new heart so that you can begin to love God more than things. Only God can do this. Pleasing mom and dad won't get you to heaven, but Jesus will. Also, consider this. The 10th commandment makes heaven sound so sweet to us. So sweet. Imagine a day in which there will be no coveting at all. You know, we think about there will be no more tears, and that's good. We don't like tears, unless they're tears of joy. We want no sickness. We love that. No more thorns and thistles. No more frustrations. No more war. No more killing. All of that Sounds wonderful, but, but what about this? No more coveting. No more coveting. Can we, do, 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 can we even imagine what it would be like to have a heart free of coveting, of all envy, of all desiring of things more than God, or to put things alongside of God? We don't, we don't even know what that feels like. To be free of that, one day we will be entirely free of all of that. No envy of neighbor. No false motives or evil desires. We will one day be perfect, both on the outside and on the inside. So we've looked at how this commandment looks back. We've seen how it goes deep. And then finally, as we close this morning, I want you to see how it reaches out. As we've talked about throughout our time in the Ten Commandments, the latter six commandments have to do with love of neighbor. How do we love our neighbor? Well, we've seen several things. By honoring authority and ultimately all people. By seeking the well-being of others and carefully avoiding harm to others. By being sexually pure and faithful, in our, faithful to our own spouse. By being generous to others rather than taking things from them. By being truthful and lifting up the reputation of others. And now, finally... By not taking in our hearts what belongs to others. By not, by not treating other people like mere containers. Holding objects that we wish to have. You, you see a person just as a shell. When you covet your neighbor's anything, you see them as just a mere a backpack. Holding something that you wish you could unzip and 
throw them to the side and take hold of what's truly valuable because they're nothing but a mere container of what you really want. They've, they've lost their humanity. Treating other human beings like non-entities that are just standing in the way of what we desire for ourselves. When we covet, when we envy, we see through people. We push people aside. We fail to love other human beings. When we covet, love of self crowds out or even erases love of neighbor. So what is the opposite of coveting? There's a lot that could be said here as we think about the broader implications of our desires and idolatry, and we've talked about that already. But with regard to our interactions with neighbor, what is the opposite of coveting? As we close this morning, as we finish up, I think we get a hint in Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The opposite of coveting when it comes to our neighbor is to reach out to them in joy. To come alongside of them in joy, rejoicing with them in all the good that befalls them. Envy is the opposite. Envy looks at the neighbor and wants to strip them. You know, we all know that nasty feeling. We all know it. That feeling that none of us in this room can escape from. Sometimes it's a big feeling of satisfaction, sometimes it's small. But it's that feeling that when another undergoes a hardship with respect to a thing we desire, there is that little sense of delight. It's evil, but it's in every single one of us. And if we're honest, we've seen it. In our hearts. This is envy. It is the opposite. It is to weep when others rejoice. And to rejoice when others weep. That's what envy does. How nasty. How despicable. How contrary to love of neighbor. This is delighting in the happiness of another person's marriage. When yours is struggling. Does it bring you satisfaction? Your, your marriage is struggling and you hear of a, a couple whose marriage is going great. Does that bring you a sense of kind of, oh, or do you rejoice for them? Rejoicing in the salvation of someone else's grown child while your own child remains unconverted. Being genuinely happy for someone else in their new home, their new home purchase or in a fun family vacation, even if you are unable to do or to have the same. This is what it means to not covet, to be content, and to be able to rejoice in the good, in the well-being, in the happiness of another. This is reaching out to our neighbor in joy. It smashes all envy, and it delights in the good, of our neighbor without regard for self. It puts self aside, all the discontent of self, all the lack for self. It puts self aside and it enters into the lives of other people and rejoices with them and is happy for them and delights in what delights them. This is the way of Christ. This is absolutely foreign to the world. Absolutely foreign. This places full confidence in the Lord's ability to provide for us, trusting his wisdom, his providence, and his care. And listen to this, freeing us up, freeing up our hearts, freeing up our focus, freeing up our mental space to celebrate with our neighbor. Such thinking and feeling and doing glorifies our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for digging into our hearts with this 10th commandment. We pray that your spirit would do his mighty work 
among us and in us. Lord, help us to cast aside all idolatrous love of earthly things. Help us cast aside taking hold of in our hearts the things that our neighbor has. And Lord, help us with much trust in you, much gratitude for all that you have given. Help us to delight in the happiness of our neighbor, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. May it never be said of us in our hearts by your spirit that we weep with those who are rejoicing and we rejoice with those who weep. Not even in the smallest way may this be found here among your children, we pray. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we come to the Lord's Supper, that as we partake of this symbol of how precious Jesus Christ is to us, that we would freshly resolve and commit in our own hearts to treasure him above all things, that we would desire to love this Jesus so much that all earthly things become strangely dim in the light of his glory, in the light of his majesty, in the light of his unfathomable mercy. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.